Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Hello and uh, welcome to St. Joseph Radio Presents, coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, which we very modestly call the Rome of the West. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because we just think a whole lot of ourselves. <laughs> uh, but anyways, with me in the studio today, uh, Sean Mueller. He is the Director of Religious Education at uh, Macular Heart of Mary Parish in New Melly. It is always, always, always a pleasure to be with you, Sean. So you welcome again today. Glad to be here. <laughs> Now, you know this routine, and so we start off with a prayer, and we always ask our guest. I'd be glad to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, you know what we're going to be talking about today. It's about you. So with fear and trembling, I invite your Holy Spirit to come upon us now in the studio, and for all who will hear these words, present and future, I ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I introduced you, you know, I don't think I introduced myself. <laughs> so, well, but, anyways, but that's okay. That's okay because I just, you know, I mean, as a good Catholic, you just want to, what, wrap your arms around nothingness? I'm nothing in comparison to, well, I don't know about comparing myself to you. That, that's not so high a bar. Um, anyways, this, so I'm Ray Gerard. It's, uh, it's great to be back in studio with, uh, with Sean again, as I said. And Sean is going to uh, give us, I get uh, this is episode four of yeah. Reasons for God. Yes, we've been going through um, a little bit of a series here. I've got a memory aid called Jumped, J-U-M-P-E-D, where I'm going to be looking at kind of reasons for God. And so we're kind of in part four of this. So I'm going to be getting with some of the more, I don't know, fun stuff. The first three parts kind of cleared the way for this memory aid, J-J. So we're going to be speaking about the first J of the letter Jumped. We're going to be speaking about the Jews and of Jesus as two key reasons to believe um, in God. Uh, right, right now, good, pretty good reasons. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this is important to do this because there's so many folks out there who just don't think that there's evidence or reasons. Like, you know, faith is feeling, science is fact, faith is emotional, it's subjective, science is objective. So, like, you know, we got to clear away that perception because that's what's going into this modern world is that. You know, there's no evidence for God, they say, and that's why religions are called faiths. What is faith? You know, it's believing something in the absence of evidence. That's kind of a popular perception, and that's just not the reality. So, you know, we got to look about what evidence is. So this kind of popular perception, just to review a little bit from last time, it's a fallacy called scientism, which basically says that it's nonsense to believe in something that is nonsensed. So if a person says, we should only believe what can be proved scientifically, you can ask, has it been proved scientifically, that we should only believe what can be proved scientifically. (laughs) So the point is, that's a philosophical statement, not a scientific statement. Absolutely. So, you know, scientism posits that the only valid true form of knowledge is what you can kind of test, put under a a microscope or, or whatnot. But 
Like I said, this is like using a metal detector to find grandma's antique wooden spoon that you lost at the beach. You aren't going to find it via a metal detector because it's a wooden spoon. So science is a form of knowledge, to be sure, but it's not the only tool in the toolbox. So when you think about science, the word literally means knowledge. There's all kinds of ways of knowing things. But unfortunately, we've reduced what is true knowledge to be just what is scientifically tested. And that's just not the reality. So you think about all these other ways that we know things, right? Trust in the word of another. I mean, that's the way we most know everything is what you say. It's, it's a revelation. You know, history, logic, authority, eyewitness testimony, philosophy, all these are ways of coming to know things. And then when you put it in terms of the God question, right, there are ways of coming to know God too. So think about like if you're, I mean, you are a lawyer, right, in a courtroom, you don't just say, you know, what's the DNA analysis of what you see? There's testimony. There's there's eyewitnesses, you know, that there's there's reasons there. So so we kind of say it could be under the umbrella of like reason and revelation. What we can kind of can know from the tools of reason, science, philosophy, as well as what's been revealed. What What is the eyewitness testimony? What has been kind of handed down? So these two tracks, reason and revelation, think about that R&R, two tracks, railroad tracks, and then you've got the two wings, you could say, of faith and reason. That's what John Paul II wrote his great encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, is that there's these two wings that, we got, that can help us fly to come to know things, especially God. So we, we, we call these, um, you know, ways of coming to know God, you know, in a sense, you can look at them as proofs, but not proofs in the sense of the natural sciences, but rather in like converging and convincing arguments. So last time I went through, I had to give a token shout out to the great philosopher, St. Thomas Aquinas, who really wedded theology and philosophy together. So using reason as our guide without any revelation, Thomas Aquinas put together his famous five ways. So um, I did my best to try and summarize them. They can be difficult, but I put them in the memory aid of bumped, you know, B-U-M-P-E-D. It rhymes with jump, but it's a good way to kind of bump us to get things moving. So the argument from being, the argument from the uncaused cause, U, from motion, M, perfection, P, and D, design. So those five ways are ways to kind of come to a rational philosophical understanding about God. But bottom line, you know, like um, there's an article that Father Dwight Longernecker wrote, and uh, he, he said— oh, I, like, I like his stuff. He, he's like really good, article. very insightful. He said, you can have your philosophical arguments for the existence of God. If they work for you, that's fine. But he goes, when talking to people, they don't really get into philosophy arguments, so to speak, you know. And so he said he always begins with, number one, Jesus rose from the dead. How's that for evidence that God exists? And he goes, and if you're looking for evidence, he goes, well, what 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 kind? He goes, would you like uh, archaeological, documentary, botanical, biological? Would you like photographic evidence, logical, historical, eyewitness? And he says, he points him always to the shroud, you know, which is the shroud of Turin, which is the alleged burial cloth of Christ, which is one of the most studied relics of Christendom in this world today. And so we're going to be speaking about that down the road here, but. Um, I just want to say one thing that I found really fascinating. Years ago, I was reading a book by Pope Benedict XVI, and um, you know, you know, he he was a great philosopher, theologian, but he talked about like when you're thinking about Thomas Aquinas and these reasons for God, these philosophical proofs. He says, "Look, look to this. You know, in the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the word for word there is logos." 
Mm-hmm. And that is a incredibly rich word. It's, you know, it's been um, defined as mind, word, thought, intellect, speech, speech, rationality. I mean, logos think logic. So here's really, this is God's reason, is that through this word, which became flesh, this is how the world was ordered. It's a rationally ordered design. Through him, all things were made. Exactly. Not only all things, yeah, all things are made and all things hold together. I mean, logos, and when I think of it, it's the order of everything, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when you say, when you say it's, it's, it's the logos, when you say it's logic, it's the, actually the order for everything. Yeah. That's who he is. Yeah. He is the reason for everything. Yeah, so you think about God making the world. I mean, his favorite language really is, you might be math. <laughs> you know, it's this rational, scientifically fine-tuned order. And that, and then he, he makes ordered minds, which are us, who can kind of perceive who he is. So, so this word that was with God in the beginning, at one point in history, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word, of course, is Jesus. So he comes personally to show us, not just through the signs and wonders of creation, but in his very flesh. So I'm going to really say that the, the, the ultimate way to know who God is is through Jesus. But we have to step back a little bit and find out where the Lord came from, not just preexistently, but in the flesh, and that's through the Jews. And it's really what a gift is because, you know, through the Jews, I'm going to speak about what they've done for the world, but it's like they've given us this revelation of who God is, that God chose this people to reveal himself to the world. And really, when you think about the Jews, um, this, their existence, their survival, this is really an argument from history. You know, the Jews are history's biggest public miracle. By every known law of human history, they should have perished many times. Think about that. Long lines of tyrants from ancient Egypt's pharaoh to modern Germany's Hitler have tried to wipe them out, yet they have survived. And so, you know, you think about that level of trying to destroy them in the past and in the future. Here they are. So you can say there's this, uh, the, the miracle of Israel. You think about the catechism says that when we, when we say that we believe in God, it's not just we have this kind of like, I hope it to be true. There's signs and motives of credibility. You know, miracles, the saints, the existence of the church and whatnot. But one of the real existence is the existence of Israel. You know, the miracle of Israel is a sign that God is real. You know, is real. Israel. So you're like, um, it's amazing when you think about just um, like this one um, novelist wrote, Walker Percy. He said, why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today there are Jews, but not one single Hittite? (laughs) <laughs> Even though the Hittites had a great flourishing civilization, while the Jews nearby were a weak and obscure people. So he says, when you go to major cities, you're always going to find Jews, but you're not going to find these Hittites, the Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, all these folks where these, you know, they just didn't last. And so the funny kind of thing is, it says, why do we all know somebody named David, but nobody has a buddy named Goliath? <laughs> you know, so it's like, you think about this, how they could survive. That is a real sign and wonder itself, both as a people, but that to maintain their level of, of, of life. Now, not all Jews are devout Orthodox Jews, but they maintain this identity. So we say that that was to both come to bring us the Lord and that they're going to have some role at the end of time as well, which we'll speak about here in a second. But just to kind of do a, a timeline, you think about this. So from Adam to Noah, Noah has Shem. That's what we, we call them, the Shemites, Semites. Then he has one named uh, um, um, great-grandson of Shem is Eber. We call him the Eberus, the Hebrews. And then he's got a great, 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 
grandson, who Abraham, who has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So we call them the Israelites. You got the Shemites, you know, and the Eberus, and then the Israelites. And one of the 12 sons of Israel was Judah. So the Judahites, the Jews. So Genesis 49 gives a prophecy that the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So then, you know, here is this kingly prophecy. And then here comes David as the king, a member of the tribe of Judah, and then ultimately is going to come the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus. So there's these prophecies, and there are these types of people, places, and things that kind of point to the Messiah. So a great book I want to recommend is what's called uh, Salvation is from the Jews. Roy Shulman uh, wrote that book, and he was a, a Jewish man raised who embraced the fullness of the faith and writes now for the Catholic Church. Really wonderful stuff, but I just think about, you know, you can say that the history of the Jews began with Abraham. You think about what he did with um, offering his son. This, that same place 2,000 years later is where the father would offer Christ on, on the cross. But that, you know, this salvation would come through the Jews. And these prophecies, they kind of point to when the Messiah would come, where and from whom the Messiah would be born, prophecies of his mission, prophecies of his passion and death. And really that's what the whole season of Advent is right now, is that we're kind of thinking about all the first chapters of the great book in Scripture that kind of point to the way, you know, not just in these prophecies, but in these persons. Jesus is the new Adam, the new Moses, the new David, the new Solomon, the new Jeremiah. All these persons and words point to, to the Lord. So I want to really recommend that book. So it's like in Salvation is from the Jews, he kind of says that, you know, God prepares this people and chooses them to ultimately bring us the Messiah, but that... One of the signs of the end times is when there's going to be some level of a mass conversion of Jews. That's what the catechism speaks about, which is very fascinating. We think about it, especially in light of 1948 when they get their homeland, that the Jews have this role to be God's messenger. So like he wrote another book, Roy Shulman did, called Honey from the Rock, about um, 16 Jews who converted into the fullness of, of the faith. They don't look at it really as a conversion, but as an embracing of its fullness, a completion a crown. So like Pope Pius XII said, or it was, I think it was him, Pius XI, who said that in a talk that spiritually all of us, Christians especially, we're all Semites, that we trace our line through the Jews, through Shem, into Adam, you know, and that it's just a, an amazing thing. There's been so much hostility toward the Jews, especially if you ever saw it in any of the Christian world, when we could say my boss is a Jewish carpenter, right? <laughs> That's what you see on the bumper sticker. So, you know, the fact that the Jews held their faith, you know, uh, in, the, in the midst of all this, I always love the line that says, you know, if you're looking for the truth of something, they say the proof of the truth is often in the persecution. Hmm. Now, I mean, that's really a fascinating thing. We think about like any, I mean, just, re, you know, like these current debates in science and, and um, you know, like here's an idea from this group, here's an idea from this group. This group seems to be persecuted. Why? Because this group wants to shut them down. Yeah, I mean, if something is untrue, you're not going to be threatened by it. Right, yeah. But if you find a threat, then you're going to try and shut it down and persecute, you know. So so they've been, you know, persecuted from, <laughs> from when they first began. From the, when they first began. Um, we're going to – just, I just want to break in for just a second and just simply uh, tell everybody, uh, if you're joining us, uh, if you joined us recently, this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. With me in studio today, Sean Mueller. He is the Director of Religious Education at Immaculate Heart of Mary in New Melly. 
And he's talking about uh, reasons for God. And before he continues, um, I just want to make mention of this. Uh, there is a Eucharistic event coming up on December 10th. What a, what a great way to mm-hmm. celebrate the Advent season. Uh, this is coming up in, uh, at St. Norbert's uh, Catholic Church in Florissant. One of the uh, featured speakers is going to be our very own Archbishop uh, Robert uh, Carlson, retired, but uh, former Archbishop. He's going to be talking about Our Lady of Loretto. Uh, Monsignor Midas is going to be talking about Eucharistic miracles. We've got other people as well. Uh, it's an all-day event. If you want to find out uh, more about it, you can call us here at St. Joseph Radio at 636 447 6,000, 636-447-6,000. Also, uh, Missouri has a life caravan going to the annual March for Life. Yes, we are still doing the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. Uh, that is, uh, it's going to be uh, uh, coming Thursday, Friday, Saturday, January 19th, 20th, 21st. Uh, for registration information, uh, you can simply go to the website, Missouri, www.missourilifecaravan.com. Dot org or call 314-434-4900, MissouriLifeCaravan.org, 314-434-4900. All right, well, that takes care of our business. <laughs> and now back to the really important business. Reason, yeah, reasons. so it's an amazing thing. They say how odd for God to choose the Jews. You're like, okay, the Lord could have you know, given his revelation in any way they wanted to, but he kind of chose the people as like a firstborn son to lead the other children in, in the world. So it's like in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you to, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And, and why? You know, you're going to be my own possession, but you shall meet, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the, the whole... Life of the of the Jewish people was to be a light to the nations. The word nations is Gentiles, so that's kind of us. All non-Jews are Gentiles, but but God chose them to be His light to the world, and that's fascinating. There's a great book out there called uh, "The Gifts of the Jews: How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels" by Thomas Cahill, and he just kind of points out like really what the Jews have done for for the world that that we just take for granted, you know. They have contributed far more to Western civilization than any other people, even though they are far less in number than hundreds of other peoples. They stand out as no other people has ever stood out in all of human history. It's a fact. So there's only two possible explanations. Either the Jews are responsible for their success or God is. It's either their doing or his. So these, these are his people. It's almost like I've given you a gift that you cannot get on your own, and I want to be this, you know, you're to be my people to be the light for the world. So you think about just in summary a little bit, what uh, the Jews gave us, they number one, they gave us monotheism, the belief that there is one God, that this God made all things that were made, including time and space, that there is a purpose to life. It's not just this cyclical view that's going nowhere. And that's a radical change. It's a radical change. There is a one God, and life has meaning and purpose. And that because life has meaning and purpose, the individual has meaning and purpose. So the Jews gave us a sense of human dignity, that the individual is precious, made in the image and likeness of God, and deserves sacred respect. And so they were really key on literacy and education to, to form yourself, to kind of know the mind of God who made all things, who made you. And then you think, like, no ancient society before the Jews ever had a day of rest. And so the Jews gave us the Sabbath, you know, which really is fascinating. We think about that it's the basis of culture to rest, 
to worship, to say that life is just not about slavery to money or things, that it's a day to really focus on what matters. And then the Jews gave us the commandments. You know, you think of the genius of the commandments that they codify in a few, a, a few simple words, what is acceptable, respectable human behavior. And we just take that for granted. So then, you know, their, their views of God, half the world today believes in the God of the Jews, over 2 billion Christians and over a billion Muslims. No one else knows God is one, infinitely powerfully, infinitely wise, and infinitely good creator than, you know, the, the God of, of the Jews. So you think about from this general belief system to this moral code, there's a word, uh, I read this book called Genius and Anxiety, which talks about, you know, just how God can give people certain gifts. You know, like somebody's got intelligence, so they've got certain gifts. But like uh, the word genius, it's used about 40 times in the Bible, but it's applied to Jacob. They called Jacob a genius, almost like that God was going to give him something to kind of give to the world. So he gave his one of his sons, Israel, ultimately, who would give us the Messiah from that tribe. But even in modern days, this is kind of an interesting fact, though, so that as of 2021, it said the world's core Jewish population was about 15.2 million, or 0.19% of the population worldwide. Now, you just look at like the history of the Jews, and it says around 200 Jews have been awarded the Nobel Prize, accounting for 22% of all individual recipients worldwide. Really? Chemistry, physics, medicine, economics, literature, peace. You know, from Einstein to Jonas Salk to Levi Strauss, you know, the inventions— you know, invented the laser, pacemakers, defibrillator, stainless steel, polio vaccine. They even invented flashlight, you know. So it's like they're the light to the nations, and we got to be thankful for their contribution. You know, even I was reading about in the American Revolution, it was that some of the Jewish men really helped finance the Revolutionary War to provide uniforms and weapons, you know, so that we could have our independence. So I, I just think it's great if you, if you just look up some of that history to say, wow, this is a real gift. You know, I was even watching an interview with uh, the uh, prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and he said that he was thankful that underneath Israel, they did not have oil but they because they couldn't just dig for wealth, that they had to use think, you know, they had to think, use their creative mind, and that one of the biggest exports today in Israel is technology, you know, so it's like they are this, you know, light to the world. But you can see then in their success – uh, because, again, too, like one of the things, if you're persecuted and, you know, life can be short, if you're under adversity, you got to be creative. you got to think. And I think part of the world's persecution really helped foster this sense of the meaning and purpose of life, and they began to be creative, too. But ultimately, I think it was God's gift. But you can see almost like I think there's a few reasons that I was pondering it about why was there such hatred for the Jews. You know, and I think it stems from, I think, first of all, it's diabolical because it says that by Satan's envy, death entered the world. And, you know, you think about anybody that has success, there's always envy. But the fact that these were going to be the people that would bring forth the Messiah. You know, John 4, 22, it says, salvation is from the Jews. So any way you can thwart salvation, past, present, and future, there's going to be a hatred there. Because how do you explain, when you think about, like, this people, they were always trying to be wiped out. I mean, only from kind of this eternal perspective of, like, this animosity that says, you know, I want to destroy you, kind of like Satan in the garden. You have something that I don't have. You have grace. I want to disgrace you. I want to destroy you. I want, misery loves company. I want to bring you down to my level. I mean, you, it, talk about, you talk about the Holocaust. Right. I mean, my goodness, that 
event. I mean, there's nothing like that event in all, all history. I mean, the the very deliberate attempt to eradicate, mm-hmm. you know, an entire religion. Yeah. And somehow they still survived. They survived. Because what would the Jews bring us? Well, the greatest creature of all time would be Our Lady. Mm-hmm. You know, that she was ultimately the most wonderful, absolute perfection of a human nature. And then through her would come this God-man. So talk about salvation is from the Jews. I mean, this is what we would say the greatest invention, quote, export of the Jews is the Lord. I mean, and that's an amazing thing to ponder. He would preserve this people. And, you know, for so many years, he had to quarantine them against the nations because if they began to kind of intermingle, they would be destroyed. So all these purity laws and dietary laws, it's like when you look at it, it's like God is trying to quarantine his people to preserve life to then somehow then ultimately bring us the God-man, this is how he was going to come to earth through these people. So the Jews would be the light to the nations, but here comes the light of the world. You know, and that's this this light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is who and what Christ is and would would be. So I want to kind of turn a page here then and to look at um, just the life of Christ and some things that I hope we uh, might be renewed in. And I want to start off with talking about the classic work by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. I mean, that, that's really a, a must-read for everybody. It's, it's so well-known, but um, he writes this. He said that amidst the various ways that God communicates with us, he selected one particular people, and he spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him, and that he cared about right conduct. These people were the Jews. And the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. But he says, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, he said, think of the shocking and often unnoticed thing that has ever been uttered by human life. That means, he said, the claim to forgive sins, any sins. He goes, now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured, right? He behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. Now, he said this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. So like Dr. Peter Crave, when I was trying to put this together to say, Lord, what, what should I say about you know, this your, your life? How do you summarize it? Well, the, the words of Dr. Crave's book called Jesus Shock came to mind. And he kind of plays off that term that C.S. Lewis said, then comes the real shock. You know, you think about like um, in this day and age, we've so domesticated Jesus that he's just so normal. He's just one figure amongst other. He's a spiritual guru. He's like a Gandhi. But it's like, no, when you touch a wire, it's one thing to touch. But if it's an electric wire, if it's hot, there's going to be a shock. And so kind of when we come back from the break, we're going to say, you know, let's look at what this shock of Jesus really was back then when he first spoke these kind of alarming, powerful, astonishing words and its reaction upon the individuals who first heard them. Very interesting. Jesus, shock, uh, the Jews, Jesus, reasons for God. We're here with uh, uh, Sean Mueller, Director of Religious Education at uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary in New Melly. And uh, we're going over uh, just a number of different ways of looking at the reasons for God. So we're glad that you're with us. 
We hope that you simply stay with us. We're going to be right back after a few messages. Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and seven medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand, the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters VRSN. M-V-S-M-Q-L-I-V-B in Latin reference which translates Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally located at the top is the word Pax which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing which your local priest can administer. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio. Check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN-TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN-TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the pro-life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. And welcome back. So I am Ray Gerard. This is St. Joseph Radio Presents. And this gentleman off to my right is Sean Mueller. He is the guy who has all the answers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, we were just talking about this. I said, you know, Lord, when I wanted to give this talk, I'm like, I just want to give your words. You know, help me get out of the way. Because uh, it is kind of intimidating when you say, what are you going to talk about? Well, I'm going to talk about the God of gods, the Lord of lords, light from light, true God of true God. It is a little bit with fear and trembling. But, um, you know, my old goal is I, I want to point to the power. And, and that's who the Lord is. So, like, we were talking about the Jesus shock. You know, it's good for all of us to say, does the Lord shock you? Like, his statements are shocking. We're going to speak about, you know, statements that caused people to want to kill him, who left him, who followed him. You know, so like um, recently, I don't know, the past few months or so, that Bishop Barron did an interview with the Shia LaBeouf. He's an actor. And um, it was interesting because he was going to play the role of Padre Pio in a movie. And so one of the, the brothers at this monastery that he went to said, if you're going to play Padre Pio, you got to know the Gospels. So he says, you got to start reading, you know. So he's like, he goes, I, he goes, my opinion of Jesus, he goes, I had never read the Gospel. I didn't really know what that was. But he's like, my opinion of Christ was very, from art, soft, squishy, you know, this effeminate, uh, you know, dishpan hands. Just all mercy and kindness. Yeah, everything is just warm and fuzzy. Not like what he talked about, like somebody that had, you know, a ferocity. No romance, he said. You know, he was just all fragile and not really firm. And he's like, his dad was one of these Mongol bikers. He had a real, you know, kind of overly <laughs> masculine man. But he says, when he read the Gospel of Matthew... Everything changed. And it's like, if we've never really read the gospel and looked at like, not just hear it, but listen to it, to look at, at, at how the Lord astonished people, he shocked people. So I just want to go through some of those teachings in scripture 
where hopefully you'll kind of reconsider things. I mean, you think about from from when he first kind of publicly came forth in at, at age 12, you know, it says that when he was in the temple, the, all the older guys around him, it says they were astounded at his understanding and his answers, even at age 12, you know. So there's something about this boy that astounds all the great wise scribes and Pharisees and whatnot. You think about the really Magna Carta of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, I mean, imagine that level of like sense of like, what do you mean, but you say, who, who are you? It says the crowds, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as just one of the scribes. So you can imagine, you know how it is when you see someone speak with authority, and yet here's like someone that says, I'm claiming more authority than the law of Moses. Like, who is this man? I say, I say. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. You're, I mean, you've got the scriptures, you've got all the Old Testament, you know, uh, writings and so forth, and it's like, okay, well, this is what the Old Testament, but this is what I say. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, talk it, about whose interpretation do you think you have here, buddy? I mean, why you say yours is right, but you're like, wow, you have an authority that... We haven't heard before. So when he goes into his hometown later on in Matthew's gospel, it says, they were astonished. Where did this man get such wisdom and mighty deeds? And it's like, is not is he not the carpenter's son? Is, don't we not know his mother? Where did this man get all this? So I love the times when they try to trap Jesus. You think about the woman caught in, in adultery or with Caesar's coin. So it says, they were unable to trap him by something he might say before the people. And so amazed were they at his reply that they fell silent. You know, there's a time when, like, um, even when they were talking about the resurrection of the dead, they were trying to throw this, like, oh, Lord, whose husband will this wife be after, you know, such and such, and try to kind of mock some of the teachings. And it says they were astonished, and they no longer dared to ask him anything after his response. <laughs> because what do you do? I mean, sometimes in a debate, you know, you think about these debates. <laughs> when, you, when you try to be humiliated by somebody, and then in, you've, you've trapped them and you've humiliated them by just by speaking the truth, that shuts them down, you know? And it's like, never try to trap Jesus because he's going to entrap you. And that's an amazing thing about, like, he's like, you think of Solomon of old who was known for his wisdom. I mean, Jesus is the new Solomon who is like, you, he's just going to know what to say, when to say, how to say it. But the fact that they were silent. So they were astonished at his words, but then at his power over nature. Think about when he was in the midst of the violent storm, and they're like, Lord, or we're going to perish. And, and then he, he gets up, like Peter Crape said, it's kind of like uh, an owner of, of a dog saying, down boy, you know, and he just calms the winds. And they say, what sort of man is this whom even the winds and the sea obey? You think about when he also had power over nature with the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and right away they're like, this is the one. And, and, and they go to seek and make him king. They're so in awe of, of, of his life and, and what he did there. Then about his healing, you know, you think about the paralytic where he says, rise and walk. The crowd saw this and they were struck with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Just as in a word, cause a man to rise and walk. So... As you know, obviously, he's got a great following now. It says, The crowds were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the deformed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind able to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, think about this like, these are people that people know 
And they're once blind, and now they see. They're once deaf, and now they hear. They're once lame, and now they're walking. And it's like, I don't know if anybody's watched the series The Chosen yet, but it's a, it's a beautiful series to really try and let your imagination to kind of ponder what it might have been like in some ways when Christ is doing these things. The other night I was watching it, and I saw a one where he healed this leper. You know, and when you had leprosy, you were shunned from the community. You were you were an outcast. You had to say unclean. And just when the Lord, you know, here's this leper approaches him. Well, then all the apostles are like, you know, back, back, back. You know, they, they want to run and Christ comes toward him and just says, I do will to make you clean. And just this man, his life is changing. I mean, it really, it really kind of touched me in a way I hadn't been moved like that for some time. But I think about Christ changed people, and he still does, you know, not just in leprosy of body, but in leprosy of, of soul. He changes lives. And that's, talk about a live wire. He still is, is, is hot in that sense. He still touches it. It's still going to be changed. So then think about this when he also, I mean, the Lord was an exorcist, right? He drove out demons. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Think about the demoniac when he cast them out and went in, in, into the swine. It says everybody there were seized with fear and terror. Now, back then, if you had fear and terror, it was it was a sign that God was at hand. But then here's the Lord when he gives the power to the apostles to go forth to cast out demons. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. And then Jesus says this statement, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Now, you think about that statement there, you're like, wait, so you were there? <laughs> I mean, that was... That was before you were born. This is like going back. <laughs> These statements that just kind of would shock the individual hearers. You know, then you think about his power to raise the dead, right? The little girl, child of 12, he tells her to arise, and it says they were utterly astounded. Think about the, the widow who had her son who was dead, and they're carrying his body through the town at Nain. Jesus says, do not weep. And he says, young man, I tell you, arise. The dead man you know, sat up, began to speak. Fear seized them all. They glorified God, exclaiming, a great prophet has arisen in our midst. God has visited his people. So to kind of see these things, you think of the big one, Lazarus, right? He raises Lazarus, and then you have people glorifying God. And at the same time, like they say, the sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. People are melting in conformity to God's love, and other people are becoming more hardened. Since they wanted to kill both Jesus and, and Lazarus. You know, some of the scribes and the Pharisees got together because their hearts were hardened. You know, now, why did they do this? Well, I think it's the same reason why death entered the world. It was because of envy to some degree, but ultimately it's going to be because of blasphemy. So that they don't like the things that Jesus is saying. Now, go back to some of his statements. So like when he saw the paralytic, this is in Mark 2. He says, child, your sins are forgiven. That's what we said in the beginning with C.S. Lewis. And they say, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming because who but God alone can forgive sins. So the Lord never backs down. If you acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge you before the Heavenly Father. If you deny me before others, I will deny you before the Heavenly Father. And then he says, like, again, think of this, this statement if you hear it for the first time. You're following this guy. You're thinking he's, you know, something. He's doing some miracles. Then he says, if you do not love me more than father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, or even your own, own life, you cannot be my disciple. Strong statement. I mean, to say me more than others, wow. I mean, that's, I mean, you might imagine a religious teacher saying, unless you love God more than your very life, but to say, unless you love me, me. you cannot be my disciple. 
No one knows the Father except the, or the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. I say to you, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. Now, you can imagine when the Lord said that. You know, like, they're like, what? This is the place where God dwells. This is the holy presence of God. This is where we sacrifice. We offer worship. And for him to say, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And then you get the big shock that left, that caused so many people to leave him. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Now, Dr. Craft in his book, Jesus Shock, goes into detail about this because we can't really imagine the, the horror and the shock it must have been for the Jews to first hear this, where they were, they were forbidden to eat flesh or drink blood. Imagine anybody saying that today. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what are you talking about? You know, this is a cannibalistic mindset, or I mean, is this a spiritual thing, or what are you saying? But, but they first understood him because the Lord never backed down about this would be some kind of a, a, you know, partaking of the real flesh and blood. Now we understood it now to be glorified supernatural flesh, but that there's going to be a new covenant, and a new covenant means new flesh and blood. Now, Doctor Crave said this great line in the book that I never really thought about. He said. The point of all this laws in Leviticus to avoid flesh and blood, he said, the point of the Mosaic liturgical taboo was to keep God's chosen people virginally pure for him, pure of animal blood so that they could receive divine blood. You know, so that like, I don't want you to partake of the flesh of the world. I'm going to give you my own flesh. So this is all preparation for this divine flesh. Now, again, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist that many people take for granted in the Catholic Church, we should never do so because what a gift to have the Lord coming in us in this way. But it, this has been the dividing point then, and it still is now. I mean, really, in essence, the Protestant Reformation was over the Eucharist. You know, I mean, do you is Jesus really, truly present substantially in the Eucharist, or is it symbolic, figurative, whatnot? So the shock still goes on. You know, like even today, if you would talk to, which is an ironic thing, but like, let's say a Protestant evangelic would say, you have to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior to become one and intimate with him. We're like, yeah, we do. In fact, we, we receive him physically in our own body. It's not just a spiritual thing. That That's a shock for someone to say, what do you, what do you mean there? Like, yeah, this is, we still believe in this real presence. So again, that's just one thing upon it. That's what many people why they left the Lord. So talk about a shocking statement. And then the Lord going on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, they might say that they point the way to the truth, the life, the way. But Jesus says he is the way. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He says to Pilate, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Now get this line. Everyone who listens to the truth hears my voice. They belong to me. So that's a great thing for anybody pursuing the truth. It's all, you're really in pursuit of what we said, the logos, the word, you know, the very mind and rationality of God. Then he goes on to say, all power in heaven on earth has been given to me as he commissions the 12, but then heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now just imagine that. <laughs> These are going to last forever. So you get to all these shocking statements, but the real big ones that makes them someone to kill him were the great I am statements. Now, and it the says, Jews, Jews obviously knew what that meant. They knew what that meant. You think about I am. This is when Moses said, who are you? Who shall I say sent me at the burning bush? 
God reveals his name. You know, we say reverently Yahweh, which means I am. This is the Lord's name. It's a mystery name. You know, what does it mean to say I I am? This is who who is God? God is. He is he is being. But that name was never said. They don't they, they would never even, you know, write it out. They would use another term called Lord, Adonai. But it says the Jews were seeking to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So you think about that line. This is in John 8, where they're really after the Lord. And it, and Jesus says, Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? <laughs> Jesus said, amen, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, I am. And what did they do? said, oh, wow, this is... This is God? No, he's like, they picked up stones to throw at him <laughs> yeah. to kill him. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, if you if you believed what the Jews believed at that time, I mean, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Talk about utter blasphemy. Because people say, why was Jesus ultimately crucified? It was because of blasphemy, that they tried to destroy him because he said that he was equal to God. So you think about these other statements. I mean, there's, there's several, but just a few more I want to speak about. When the Lord walks in the water... Obviously, he's showing power over the nature. The apostles are scared to death. He says, take courage, I am. Be not afraid. And then he gets in the boat, and they, and they worship him, you know, at, at times. Then you think about in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, when they're going to arrest them, he said, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And it says, they turned and fell to the ground. Just the power of the name, Blocked order to let you know, I'm allowing this to happen. I've got power. And they fell down. And then under oath, you know, they, they say like the Lord kind of, you know, took time to reveal who he was. He kind of kept this messianic secret under wraps for a time and that he was who he said he was, the son of the living God. Peter said it in Matthew 16. But then the yes. high priest puts him under oath and says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Then Jesus answered, I am. And he quotes this prophecy from Daniel, which talks about this eternal, almighty God. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And, and, then, that, and that just... Oh, yeah. That just that did that tear, it. That tears it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let me just break in for just a second to say that this is St. Joseph Radio Presents, coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. You are listening to Sean Mueller who uh, is uh, talking about reasons for God. And just a couple of very quick announcements. Uh, I just want to mention again, we, you know, we're talking about the Eucharist and the radical statements that, that Christ made in John chapter 6. While there's a Eucharistic event uh, celebrating uh, this wonderful, tremendous gift, this continuing gift of our, of our Lord and Savior, uh, this event is going to be held at St. Norbert's Catholic Church in Florissant, and it's going to be on December 10th if you want information. For example, you can simply call uh, call this uh, radio station, St. Joseph Radio, 636-447-6000, 636-447-6000. Also, the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. Yes, it is happening again. There is a Missouri Life Caravan if you want information on how to get on the bus and attend this event. Uh, MissouriLifeCaravan.org or uh, 314-434-4900. 314-434-4900. Yeah, so you think about what we just uh, said, that when the Lord said, I am, 
The high priest did not take that well. Rips his garments and said, you have heard the blasphemy. And they all condemned him. It was deserving to die. So this, the Lord came and he comes as this, again, the sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. He is the sword. Now, if you haven't seen Bishop Barron's Catholicism series, you, you, you really got to watch it. The first show is called Amazed and Afraid. And he, he talks about... In Mark chapter 10, 32, it says, And they were going up the road, this is Jesus and his apostles, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He said, Now, part of the text, what kind of person could generate that type of reaction? One might be intrigued by a religious teacher. One might be captivated by a spiritual leader, but amazed and afraid. So in the Old Testament, those are two responses to, to God. When God appears or manifests himself, people are amazed and afraid. So we said we reached this point when the Lord, he has these followers, you know, and he's showing he's not just a spiritual guru, right? You know, he, he is something unique. So then Matthew 16, the great text we all should almost know by heart. He's in the regions of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the 12, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter stands up. You are the Messiah the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ affirms him. You know, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, Simon Bar Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. So not just the Jewish Messiah, but the Son of the living God. So that question, though, is what we all got to really ask ourselves. You know, who do you say that I am? I mean, that's where it all starts. So again, this is all in the context of reasons for God that if Jesus is, in fact, who he said he is. You've got the best reason for belief in God, that God has come to earth. We can know him. We can call on his name. Because really there's an either-or when it comes to Jesus. Either he is who he says he is, or he's a bad man. There's no middle ground, right? So, you know, if he is who he says he is, then we got to be, we got to give our whole life to him. This is the Lord who made us. So if he is God, he's got to be the center. But if he's not, he's not a good man. He's dangerous. He's a misguided fanatic. Jesus, more than any other figure, more than any other religious figure, compels us to make a choice. So I was like this term. I says, you know, nowadays we want to kind of domesticate Jesus. He's just a nice guru amongst others. So it's like it's either Jesus the nice or Jesus the Christ. You know, is this the nice church, the nice creed, or the Nicene creed? You know, is the church that he founded on Peter the militant mystical body of Christ? Or is it Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? You know, it's like... Christianity is not just a set of ethical niceness, but we've kind of reduced it to that. You know, we're following Christ the lion, not Christ the kitten. So we said before, I mentioned C.S. Lewis, and he kind of makes this point that I just said about there's an either or. So really the only three options you have in terms of who Christ is, is he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. So uh, this is the most important argument in Christian apologetics. For once an unbeliever accepts the conclusion of this argument that Christ is divine, everything else follows, right? But you got to make the choice. Who do you think he is? I talked to a relative one time, and I asked him this question. He, he said, well, I just think Jesus was a crazy man. I think he was massively <laughs> misguided. And I'm like, well, how do you explain all this stuff? Well, I just think it was probably false reporting. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's nice. But uh, <clears throat> So I just want to go through in our time left just to give you a taste of this Jesus, Lord, liar, or lunatic Arguments. So in, in a talk that uh, Dr. Peter Crape gave called Seven Reasons to be Catholic, he says that C.S. Lewis gave us this argument, you know, and it's, it's, it's this. It's, it's probably his best and most important argument that he gives. Here's a man who claims to be God. He either is or he isn't. If he isn't God, he is a very bad man. 
He's not the one thing almost every non-Christian thinks he is, namely a good man, a prophet, a philosopher, a rabbi, a teacher, a moralist, somebody you'd send your kids to Sunday school to, right? But um, here is a man, if he was just merely a man, then the sort of thing Jesus said, he would not be a great moral teacher, right? Because Christ says that he is humble and meek. And we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics <laughs> we could attribute to some of his sayings. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option that, that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus doesn't lend himself to being taken halfway. Mm -hmm. There is no halfway. Right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we just celebrated the Feast of Christ the King, and he's either Lord of all or not Lord of all. You can't have it kind of both ways. Like, is Jesus... I mean, the, the one big split in our culture right now is like, we just kind of reserve the God times for maybe a Sunday worship, if that. So is the Lord the Lord of our life? Because it's comfortable. All the time. It's comfortable if he's just, you know, a good teacher, if he's just somebody other than, you know, who he claimed to be. I mean, if, if he's just a good moral teacher, well, then we really don't have to we – if we go halfway, then we don't really have to change our lives That's completely. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not accountable. He just gives me recommendations to kind of make me for a happier life or whatnot. So, so you can't just say he's a, a good man. He forces you to say one of the two extreme things. So either you throw stones at him in holy horror, as the pious Jews did when he said before Abraham was, I am, or you bow down and worship him. And we know that some people bowed down and others did not. So again, we're going to speak about next time about just the real ultimate proof for who Jesus was that confirmed everything he said and did, and that was his resurrection from the dead. It really rises or falls there. If Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. So those words are just as strong today as they as, were when Paul as first ever. So that was the tease about what's going to what's going to come up on the the next time that uh, uh, Mr. Miller is, is with us again. Uh, this has been St. Joseph Radio presents. We are glad that you joined us today. We hope you come back and, and join us again. We come to you live on Saturdays from St. Louis, Missouri. Reasons for God. Stay tuned. There's going to be another chapter in this. You got it. been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.